I guess I've made it no secret that this has been a little bit of a, a bumpy ride over the last uh, few weeks and months. And uh, although I've been trying to really keep it under wraps and not affect anyone, yeah, I've been I've been a little heavy, let's say, just feeling kind of heavy, just feeling kind of, uh, of burdened with a lot of things that are going on. But I thought I was doing well, you know, just kind of holding my own, staying functional. May, hopefully the only one who knew that I was out of sorts at all was Marion. But uh, maybe I wasn't fooling as many as I thought. But then the other night, about three nights ago, I had a dream. I had a dream. And uh, I want to tell you about my dream because it kind of opened my eyes to, to something. And the dream was that I was back in college. And I was on the campus. And it, you know how dreams juxtapose kind of things from different places in your lives? So this college kind of looked like the college that I went to outside of Chicago at Elmhurst with a lot of, you know, old buildings, brick buildings, and, and just that, that kind of look in architecture. And then it was sort of combined with the newness of, of St. Andrew's Presbyterian in Newport Beach that I spoke at. But, you know, I wasn't thinking that until afterwards when I was in the dream, but I was just, but now I think about it, it was kind of those two things together. So it was this really kind of old Ivy League looking kind of thing, but at the same time there was, there's a newness and an energy to it. And I remember I was just totally mesmerized by the look of the campus and walking around. And I went into what I suppose was a cafeteria where people were having lunch. And it was this huge cavernous room with a white, I don't know if it was linoleum floor, but it was just real slick. But there was no furniture in the room. The room was completely open, blank. And people were just sort of camped out like picnics on the floor eating their lunch. Some of them were on blankets. Some of them were just sitting two by two, one by one, reading books, eating. And so there was these pockets of people all over the place. And I realized that I was sliding on the floor and I looked down, I just was in my socks. Didn't have any shoes on. But I realized that this floor was so slick that I could slide, you know, like Tom Cruise in Risky Business. I could slide. And so I realized, I can ice skate on this thing. And so I just started in and I was ice skating and I was what was her name? Michelle Kwan. I was just all over the place. And, I, and don't bother me with the physics. I know that's not possible with socks on a floor because there was nothing to grab. But I was doing it. I was cutting and I was moving. I was going in between all these people and around. I could feel the wind just blowing back. It was the most freeing thing. It's just amazing to feel that kind of freedom that, that I knew that I was in control and I could move and dive and not hit anybody. It just felt amazing to be doing this. The next thing I know, I'm back outside in the campus and I'm walking around and I'm just looking at these trees and these colors and the people that are coming at me. They all just looked like, you know, they were sunscreened or something. They were just vibrant and laughing and we were talking and I was getting eye contact. And at one point I sat down with one of the students and I was talking to him and he was showing me his books and showing me his notes and all of a sudden I realized I had no idea what he was talking about because I hadn't been attending any classes. <laughs> not a class, not a clue. I didn't even know how long I'd been there. All I knew was everything that he was telling me about was complete Greek to me. I had no idea what was going on. You know, when I woke up out of that thing, that feel, and then, of course, the heaviness came down. Oh, my gosh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I returned you know, back into life again. But what it did for me was to highlight, you know, that even though I thought that I was maintaining, even though I thought that I'm still functioning, there's a whole other tier of life, a whole other quality of life that I wasn't accessing, that I felt there in that dream for a moment. 
and then come back here and realize, I'm not doing that. I am not ice skating in my socks around the house. You know, it's not happening. So what's wrong with this picture? What's going on? You know, the stark contrast about this whole other quality of life got me thinking, how is it supposed to be? Is this the way it's supposed to be? Is ice skating in your socks the way it's supposed to be? Is something in the middle? How is it supposed to be? Western Christians have focused so much on the crucifixion as the the whole crux, the cross, the, the whole essential piece of our faith so much that we have inordinately focused on the passion, on the suffering of Jesus. Movies tend to focus on it, and, and just as a culture, we've focused on it. In fact, by the late Middle Ages, dealing with passages like Isaiah 53, which is one of the poems of the suffering servant. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Isaiah has four poems that are deemed a suffering servant. And there's endless debate, both on the Jewish and the Christian side, as to whether those poems are dealing with an actual person or dealing with the nation of Israel as a whole and as a metaphor. So it looks both ways depending on how you're looking at it and which poem you happen to be reading. But there are Jews and Christians both who believe, no, it's a nation of Israel, or no, it is a prefiguration of the Messiah that everybody is waiting for. But given that imagery, in fact, take a look. I put a little bit of uh, Isaiah 53 in the handouts, right at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." And so here is this image that fits right in with Western theology and the focus on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. It all comes together. And by the 1300s, by the late Middle Ages, the two main religious icons, the two artistic expressions of faith were the Man of Sorrows, which was a depiction of Jesus usually naked from the waist up with all of his wounds displayed. You know, bleeding, and his head usually tilted, either eyes closed or looking down, and a complete look of grief on his face. And the other was Pieta. You know, the Pieta, the, the depiction of Mary holding the, the dead body of Jesus. I'll tell you what, as I was looking at these, if you haven't recently taken a look at Michelangelo's Pieta, just get a good picture of it and zoom in. It's just absolutely amazing. I don't know how you do that in stone. Just the folds of the garments and the, and the, the muscles and the veins and the expression of the faces, the hands. It's just absolutely incredible. Western civilization at the peak of artistic expression was focused on the man of sorrows and Pieta. Looking at Jesus, looking at faith, looking at life through that lens, through that way of understanding that this life is to suffer. Now, the suffering servant is rewarded at the end for dogged persistence and perseverance through all of that. And so we, as a culture, we as a people of faith, we as a church, 
have looked at life kind of as a grin and bear it sort of thing. We need to get through this, and then we're going to get our reward. If we just persevere, this life is a veil of tears. This life is difficult. But at the end, we're going to get our reward in the next life. So when this rich young man comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to obtain eternal life? We need to ask ourselves, have we got it right? Are we looking at this thing in the right way? Because when we hear that question from that rich young man, we're thinking eternal life is the life that's going to happen in the next one. Something that we're still waiting for. And we want to make sure that we don't get cut out. Did you hear about that work group that just won $500 million in the in the lotto? <laughs> they paid two bucks a piece for the ticket. And they're, they're going to get, you know, probably about $30 million each. We don't want to be cut out of the lottery, you see. We want to make sure that we are putting in our dues. We are paying for our tickets all the way through so that when the big drawing comes, we're going to be there. And that's the way that we tend to look at this thing because of this viewpoint, culturally and theologically, as we move through. So the metaphor for us is grin and bear it. The reward is going to come in the next life. And so when this rich young man comes and asks, what must I do to obtain eternal life? The way that is actually literally written in the Aramaic is life that is eternal. What must I do to gain life that is eternal? And that little change in phrase is going to be important, I hope, as you'll see as we go on. But isn't this a question that we're all asking? Don't we all want to know, what must I do to obtain life that is eternal? So, as this question is coming out there, what is the young man really asking from a Jewish point of view? And what is Jesus actually offering as his first followers would have understood this? Because this is where we have to come if we're going to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about eternal life. And then what we're talking about when we talk about the life that we're leading right here and right now. So, probably the most famous verse in the New Testament is... What would you say? John 3.16. Yeah. Who can quote it? Anybody? You guys are good. Although you're probably cheating because it's right on the bottom of the in and out drink cups. Right? I mean, it's, it's that ubiquitous. Why is that become such a central verse in Christianity? Because... It really encapsulates the entire gospel, doesn't it? You know, God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have life that is eternal, will have everlasting life, eternal life. But do we understand what that means from a Jewish point of view? This is what is so important. Now, if we're going to do this, if we're going to understand what John 3.16 means, because I do believe that it does encapsulate the gospel, but not in the way that we have come to understand that through the man of sorrows. If we stop and we look first through a Jewish context, we can start to see something different that I'm hope, hoping will start to reorient us, to start to change our point of view. And so if we do that, let's take a look. And let's start right at the beginning of John 3, right at the beginning, so we can get the full run at it, the full context of what's going on here. Because a verse out of context is really difficult to translate or very difficult to interpret. We need to see 
the bed in which it's lying to understand because there are so many details that are going to be brought to bear on the one that we're trying to understand. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and that's not an insignificant detail, he came to Jesus by night. In other words, he was in hiding. He probably had his prayer shawl, his talit, way over his head and was coming by the dead of night because he didn't want to see the other rulers, the other Sanhedrin members, the, the rulers of Judea, um, see what he was doing, going to this, this non-person here, this one who is of questionable you know, legal authority. But he comes to him by night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he's talking here in the plural, so he's not alone. There are others who share his point of view. There's others who share his curiosity. In fact, he was probably drew the short straw and had to go <laughs> from this group of people and go see Jesus and risk getting seen by doing this. But Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no man can do these signs that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus answers and says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this phrase, born again, if you translate it directly out of the Aramaic, is interesting because it means born from the start. That would be how it would absolutely translate, literally. Born from the start. To start over all fresh, new. You ever heard the phrase beginner's mind? To have beginner's mind. To start as if you know nothing. There's a great line from a movie where this one man says, Speak to me as you would speak to a small child or a golden retriever. Beginner's mind. Pretend that I don't know anything. And then tell me, are we willing to do that? Is Nicodemus willing to do that? Because Jesus says, if you don't do that, if you're not willing to just let go of everything that you think you know, everything that you're so invested in, mentally, ritually, relationally, hierarchically, wow, that's a huge one, especially for those rulers, if you're not willing to let that go and start again, as if you're a golden retriever, then you're not going to be able to see this kingdom that Jesus, that the Father, are trying to get in front of us. And Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter into his, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So here's Nicodemus literalizing, misunderstanding. And here comes Jesus right back to him. To try to clarify, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless born, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from the start. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus doing here? Here comes Nicodemus, like a freight train, with these logical questions. We see that you do signs. You must be a man of God. And the unstated question here is, what must I do to obtain the eternal life that you're talking about? What must I do to enter the kingdom that you're talking about? It's not stated here as a question, but the answer comes later. Right? Same answer. And here comes Nicodemus with all that. And Jesus cuts him off, stops his line of thinking, 
And he's trying to get him to understand you're not going to be able to approach this from a logical, rational point of view. Spirit doesn't work that way. The more you persist in logic and in physical processes, all you're going to get is more of the same. There's a point at which you need to make a complete clean break, a quantum leap into, call it a non-rational freefall, I guess, into God's embrace. Can you do that? Can you come back to the position of a small child, accept what you see at face value, and then respond? Because if you can't do that, how in the world do you think that you're going to understand what kingdom is all about? It's made of different stuff. The spirit is the spirit and the flesh is the flesh. You need to be born, baptized, if you will, by water and by spirit. Physical birth and now a spiritual birth that starts you all over again, but in a direction that is kingdom bound. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you take this journey, Jesus is saying, without an outcome that you have a stranglehold on? Can you take this journey in such a way that you really don't know where you're going or even where you're coming from, but you're allowing yourself to be blown by the energy of the Spirit and allow it to unfold in real time? It feels so different than any other journey we take. It feels so different than what we think this relationship with God is all about. Nicodemus says back to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers and says to him, and I love this response, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You are the top. You are the top of the pyramid when it comes to Judaism and you don't understand these things. It's, it's, he's, it's just that, that frustration that you see coming through. Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony And if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So what is Jesus saying? Notice that he switches to the plural here. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. In other words, he's saying, I and everyone around me, my followers, are experiencing something. We're not just thinking about it. We're experiencing it. We know, and that's the Jewish know, which means intimate familiarity, not mental assent. But the time spent handling something until it's burned into your muscle memory. We know the things of which we speak. We have lived the things of which we speak. The testimony we give is from this deep knowledge, this knowing, this experience, having lived this out. And yet... If I even speak to you of these things that we know from an earthly perspective and you can't accept those, how in the world are you going to accept what I'm telling you when I'm telling you things that you can't see if you can't accept the things that you can see? Jesus is really taking him to school here and us as well. He says, No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven. An interesting statement. The Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
will have eternal life, will have life that is eternal. It's, it's Jesus, again, giving another shot at trying to get him to understand. No one can talk about these unseen things until they've experienced them. Jesus is the one who descended from heaven. He's the one who can speak about heaven. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the cross in the desert when the people had been bitten by the poisonous serpents and anyone who looked at the cross was healed, this is what he's referring to back in Exodus. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And anyone who looks at him metaphorically, that is, believes in him, but not just mental assent, because belief here is all about trust, and trust only comes from experience. That connection is going to bring the eternal life that obviously Nicodemus is looking for, and everyone else. So now we get then to our target verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but we'll have eternal life. So let's take a look at that for a second. Because every single word, almost, in John 3.16, we have to take a look at from a Jewish point of view to understand. There are seven words here and phrases that I want to just quickly go through and see if we can put them back into a Jewish context and see how it changes what it is we think about this verse. First of all, God. For God. God. In Aramaic, Allaha. Allaha means oneness. It means unity. It means multiple things functioning as one. And most interestingly, it means the one without opposite. The one that has no opposite. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? And actually, the word itself has three roots, three syllables. Al, La, and Ha. And Al, or El, means one, oneness, unity, multiple things functioning as one, just as we said. But it also means the greatest power or the greatest potential. It means something that is driving toward an end, a consummation, some kind of purpose, right? The word ha is the definite article, so it's the. So we got the one, right? The power, the potential, the one who is driving toward. And then la is the negative It can literally just mean no. Or it can mean something that is driving toward no sort of end, no sort of purpose, or just the negation of everything. But this idea of the one with no opposite is fascinating. They're talking about the the singularity of God, the uniqueness of God, that God has no rival, that there is no other like God. It's just a beautiful way of putting it. But for our purposes... Unity, oneness, is the main point to take away from Allaha, their name for God. So, for God so loved, so, we got to take a look at so, this tiny little word. If we talk about someone loving so, what's the word that we are leaving out that we're hearing in our head? Much, you know? So much. He loved her so much. But as soon as we apply much, so much to God, we're suddenly taking his love and creating degrees. If he loves so much here, then maybe he loves a little less over here. And so we have to understand that God's love has no degree. Anything that you can't measure, I love this, anything that you can't measure always looks the same. Always looks the same. 
You cannot measure God's love. It is infinite. It is unconditional. It always looks the same. There's not so much over here or a little bit less over there. This word so here, hakanah in, in Aramaic, can mean so, but in a different sense. It can mean thus, which is closer. It literally means in this way or in this manner. This is the manner in which God loved. Not that God God loved the world so much. This is the manner in which God loves the world. The world, Alma, is the word in Aramaic. And it means age, generation, or era. Its roots point to youth. Its roots point to newness. A constantly changing and growing diversity a constant turnover, newness, new generations, new things happening, new, new species arising and, and things changing constantly. This is the way that the ancients looked at their world around them. Exploding abundance and diversity, always changing, always moving before them over and over and over again. And they gave this word, meaning that, to world. So God, for this reason, God loved the world And he gave his only begotten son. So this word, only begotten, in Aramaic, ihidaya. Now coming from the way that we are coming from in our culture, when we see ihidaya, which does mean single or solitary, the first thing we're thinking of is an only child, right? So he's the only begotten son. He is God's only child. But ihidaya also means completely united in all aspects of being. We would call we would use the word integrity, I suppose. Jesus was completely the same inside, outside, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, everything all had one purpose. It was all united under his father's will. And so Ihidaya is not just single or solitary, it's also completely united, completely one, this complete connection of being, complete fulfillment, if you were, of himself as a human being. So whoever believes, believes, etamen, it's related to the word amen in Hebrew. And it means essentially the same thing. But what it doesn't mean is mental belief, mental assent, just a mental agreement of a certain concept. That's not what it means. It means trust. And trust can only be gained experientially. You can't just decide to trust. Something has to prove itself trustworthy to you before you trust. So trust Confidence would be another way to look at etamen. Rooted firmness, something that goes really deep. Amen. Fulfilled. This is everything that he's trying to get across with this word. Whoever believes in him, in this ihidaya, in this son of God, will not perish. This is an interesting word. The word is ibad in, in Aramaic. And we think of it meaning to die. But its primary meaning is to lose. Remember when Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you lose it. And if you want to, uh, if you lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. That's the same word, abad. So it means to lose. It means to go astray. It means to destroy. It means to fall into decay. So perish here would be more on point in the way that we use it when we talk about something being perishable, something that can decay, something that can break down, something that can go in a different direction than what is taba, what is good, what is ripe, what is nutritious for us. This is the idea of ibad. 
They will not perish, but they will have life that is eternal, eternal life. So life, haye, literally means strength. It means life force. It means energy. It is all those things that animate anything to move and to have what we call life. And eternal, and this is the kicker, eternal is alma, the same word that is used for world. World and eternal are alma, the same thing. Never recall what alma is. Era, generation, constantly changing cycles of diversity and newness, youth. To the Semitic mind, as they looked at the world and they looked at their idea of something that was eternal, it was the same concept. Something that was always changing, always new, always diverse, always making itself over again. This is something that they understood as eternal. The NIV talks about it in their study notes. They define eternal life this way. Infinitely high quality of life in living fellowship with God, both now and forever. That's it. That's perfect. Infinitely high quality of life in living fellowship with God, both now and forever. It's life that is eternally alive. It's life that is never boring. It's life that never feels less than. It's life that is always buoying us up and taking us someplace we really want to go. And it's not an either-or situation. But the Jews, I can tell you, would be focused on this life rather than the next one. The Jews didn't focus on the afterlife. This was the life that they were in charge of. This was the life that their purpose as human beings had any control over in terms of living between heaven and earth. It's not that they didn't believe in the next life. It's that this would have been their focus. And so life that is eternal is life that is eternally and forever alive. Starting right here and right now and moving into whatever is coming next. And so if you take all those definitions and you take the context of the paragraphs before where Jesus is talking about the necessity of experience, of knowing the things of which you testify, how could we paraphrase John 3.16? Well, I gave it a stab. And it's going to sound kind of strange and it's going to have a lot of words, but let's see if, if, this, if this helps at all. John 3.16. This is how... The one God of unity loved the world of diversity and separate form. Unity, God, gave those living in diversity the son or the child of his own unity. The full integration, the merging of unity within diversity. So that whoever followed, whoever merged with him, connected with him, and experienced trust in the son, would never be lost or separated from life that is always alive and new, now and always. I don't know if that does anything for you. But here's the thing that it does for me. It shifts the focus of my relationship with God. I am not living my relationship with God now in order to have something later. I'm living my relationship with God in such a way now that it is the fullness of this connection that makes life alive. And even though I haven't been doing it very well lately, I know that this is my goal. 
And furthermore, I know that this is my choice. It's my choice to lean into the moments that I have and find those colors, find that slick floor that I can slide on and live my life at a different pitch. Because God has given us the son of unity. God has given us this incarnation of himself, Emmanuel, God with us here and now, that we can see and emulate and embrace, that can take us into this kind of quality of life. It changes everything in terms of the way that I view it. I'm hoping that it can start to tweak the way you look at things. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. And this word abundantly is talking about the same things. It means better. It means more. It means excessive. It means excelling. To have strength, to have life force, to have energy that is more and better and excessive and excelling. This is what Jesus is trying to get us. It's Hayed Alma. It's life that is eternal. Life that is eternally alive. Life that is never, ever stale. Ever boring. And Jesus only testifies to what he knows himself. So what does that say about Jesus' character? If this is what Jesus is telling us about the way that eternal life is characterized, if this is what Jesus is telling us about the way that we obtain eternal life, it's by this intimate familiarity with the Father through this way of living life, then can we continue to look at Jesus as a man of sorrow? Can we continue to look at him in that way? If Jesus really was testifying to something he knew, then he was the first guy in the pool. He was the guy who was running ahead of all of us. He was the guy in his socks who was ice skating circles around the rest of us and laughing and calling us to join in the fun. He was the one who was scooping up every child in every village and giving horseback rides and laughing and giggling and tickling. He was the one that was changing the face of what his followers understood about their religious obligation, about the way that they were supposed to fulfill everything that they were supposed to do in terms of the relationship with their God. And on top of that, he calls this God his Abba, his Daddy, bridging the gap between the King of the universe and the Creator who gathers all respect and awe, at the same time has the intimate familiarity of daddy. This is not a man of sorrows. This is not someone who is living his life less than abundant. And this is what we need to understand about our lives as well. So, what must we do to obtain eternal life? Given all of this, if all of this is true, what must we do to obtain Life that is eternally alive. The first thing is, we need to be willing to be born from the start. We need to be willing to be born again. We need to go back to that beginner's mind. We need to go back to the golden retriever and just take a look at everything from that point of view, three feet off the ground, and see everything as if brand new and fresh. To let go of everything that we've been invested in. It's not going to come off all at once but to be willing to let go of pieces at a time, to shed our skin over and over, 
the things that are limiting, the things that are holding us back. And if we don't know that they're limiting or holding us back, be willing to let them go anyway and see what happens. Because if there's something we really need, they'll come back to us. We need to trust that they will. First, we need to be willing to be born from the start. And then secondly, to put down all that keeps us from seeing that kingdom is here now. That the eternal aliveness starts now, not sometime in the future. And then we need to let that breath, that wind, that spirit, that ruach, that ruha, blow through us and blow us along without demanding to understand where we're going and even where we're coming from. To simply be present to this moment, to engage fully in this moment, even if we can't see how it's going to lead to the next moment, to be willing to let go of the next moment and the outcomes that we cherish and think we need so badly to just be here now. Can we do that to the exclusion of all else? Jesus is asking Can we realize through this willingness the trust, the confidence that we will never be separated from life that is eternally alive as long as we're hanging on to the God of all life? It can't happen. Nothing can separate us, Paul says. Nothing. As long as we are here, locked in now letting go of all these things that distract, all these things that decay us, all these things that make us perishable, to just be here, be now. So that at least 51% of the time, more often than not, we are characterized by ice skating in our socks. Can we do that? Can we get to that place? And forget about going to class every once in a while as well. This is a life that Jesus has. This is a life that I can now close my eyes and see him embodying. This laughing, smiling Jesus, calling everyone on with the brilliance of his smile and not the bleeding wounds. And if he can do that and says that we can, then we're going to have to put down our scourges, put down some of the things that we're carrying around that are so heavy. And see if there's another way that we can approach this moment. Just this moment. Can we do it right now? Can we just listen to this music and let it be enough? Can we just be here right now? And the next moment, we'll bring something else in. Can we do it then? Maybe not. Maybe that's a heavy moment. But then there's a next moment. And maybe we can. And that's life. Not one switch on or off, but a choice. Each moment to come to ground and find the abundant life, the life that is eternally alive right here, right now, extending for as long as we keep making the choice to be here, to be connected, to accept the love that is freely offered. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've laid it all out. You've set this table for us. And I don't know if I've got it entirely right. That's less important than all of us just diving into you and your presence. Help us to do whatever it takes 
to break through whatever we need to break through to be here now. To let simple presence overwhelm the heaviness that we feel. To overwhelm the things that we have not gotten done yet. The things that are outside of our control that we worry over. Let this moment overwhelm that and bring us to the life that is alive. Help us to do that more and more, Father. Help me to do that more and more. We love you. We sometimes don't know how to express it. We're not good at that. And we're sure not good at being defenseless and vulnerable. But help us more and more to trust that we can do that, to be fearlessly vulnerable in your presence and that everything is going to be okay. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for drawing us to you. Thank you for the gift of your Son who shows us who you are. Take us wherever you want us to go. We're giving you permission right here, right now. And recognizing that we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.